What's up, guys? We get to be in God's Word. We're going to be in Acts 17, as Bianca read. And thank you for joining us as we continue in the series in the book of Acts. Last week, we started this chapter and found Paul and company traveling from city to city, ending up in Thessalonica and then Berea. And I have a couple of uh, things that I have to correct from last week. I confused the Bereans with the Gideons. My bad. And only one person, Mike was like, I bet you like four people are going to correct you. Nope, only Mike corrected me. So you're welcome. I made a mistake. Also, Jason Martin was here last week, and I'm sorry for that. Hey, buddy. Yeah, he was very early today, so that worked. Let's see who else is it. Anyway. <sighs> so Paul and company were in these different cities, uh, Thessalonica and Berea. And guess what? They were preaching the gospel, and a commotion was happening and then some whiners, I mean some religious people, decided to stir up the crowd. They traveled 50 miles from Thessalonica all the way to Berea, and then after the authorities got involved, Paul decided to move on from there to Athens, where we find ourselves today, and we'll be covering a pretty familiar passage, especially for those of you who were, heard Laura's first solo sermon just a few months ago. I appreciated that sermon. I thought it was great. I don't feel like I need to correct anything of hers. Definitely have to correct stuff of mine, obviously. But I hope that we can find some other low-hanging fruit in this passage as we've been studying this path, as we've been studying the book of Acts, as the apostles have been spreading the gospel all around Europe and Greece especially. Now, there are a lot of reminders and common themes in Christianity, aren't there? Like, you come here, and there's certain things you're kind of expecting that are going to happen on a Sunday. There's certain things that we read that you're kind of used to hearing. And the reality is, when we start to hear stuff over and over, it can do one of two things. It can become like white noise. We can stop really hearing what the point of it is. But then also, I think repetition comes with the opportunity for understanding. And I wonder if it's a bigger deal as we do some of the things over and over, not just at church, but throughout our lives. Maybe we read scripture on our own and read similar passages that we've read before. I wonder if it's a bigger deal than we realize. How many times have you heard the gospel? I want you to think about that for a second. How many times have you heard the gospel? Now, pretty sure you hear it at least once or 30 times a week in this church building on a Sunday morning. But how many times have you heard the gospel and how many people actually respond to the gospel the first time they hear it? I know for me, I heard it many times. I heard it in a bunch of different ways and it took God using repetition for it to finally get my attention and for God to draw me to himself. And so as we study this passage today that many of us have heard that I have preached many times in many different contexts, I want us to think about how maybe there's something new and fresh or some type of reminder that we need as we come to this text. So we're going to start in verse 16 of chapter 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Paul was waiting in Athens, and we read last week, with Tim, uh, waiting for Timothy and Silas, who would be joining Paul. But Luke writes that Paul was distressed because the city was full of idols. Athens had been one of the most important cities anywhere hundreds of years prior to this when it came to philosophy as a beacon for such minds as, let's see if you guys have heard of these minds, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and many others. But these three in particular names that most of us have heard throughout school. 
The city of Athens, while still important at this point, where Paul shows up there, was known for art and culture and beauty and knowledge, but it had lost most of the political clout that it once had. And here comes Paul, distressed by how full of idolatry the city was, not just like assuming, but literally there were statues and physical idols everywhere. Verse 17, so he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day (laughs) with those who happened to be there. So what does Paul do? What is his custom? He first goes to the synagogue. He first goes to the Jews, and he reasons with the God-fearing Greeks and Jews to point out who the Old Testament was speaking about, the Messiah who was to come, which was and is Jesus. But Luke notes that it isn't just those who are already a bit religious that were attending the synagogue, but those who were probably more focused on things of the day, things of culture, things that had no eternal value. But Paul, the ultimate Jesus guy, was going to bridge the gap between what someone found as ultimate and to point to why it makes the most sense eternally to replace that idol with Jesus Christ. Verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and his resurrection. So Paul's then confronted by Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. And what's interesting about this is that these are two types of philosophers who had contradicting beliefs about philosophy and about the way the world worked. Now, I don't want to spend too much time here, but you had the Epicureans that were considered the feelings, the emotions group. They were spurred on by what they felt more than what they read or what they learned. But to assume the Epicureans were like a shallow version of, say, Pentecostalism is not really what this was either. They believed that deep inner peace was the goal, and it was attainable by humanity by removing things that cause stress and worry. Well, that kind of sounds kind of good. And then you had the Stoics, which is considered the philosophy of rationale and logic. These two types of philosophies, while not as completely in disagreement as many might think, they were competing views of this day in Athens. And both camps wanted to argue with Paul regarding his view of Jesus. So... Here we have Paul talking to these two, debating with these different types of philosophies, and while they accused Paul of preaching what was regarding foreign gods, which were not the accepted gods of Greece, he was telling the good news, the gospel of grace in Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. Now, personally, I've had many conversations over the years with people regarding Jesus and his resurrection, and I call them conversations because I kind of grew out of the idea that I could debate someone into the kingdom of God. Now, maybe you have, but generally when I've debated with someone and someone has agreed with them, someone else has debated them out of the faith, and so I don't tend to debate. I reason, I talk, I have conversations, I point to the text, I point to the resurrection. And what I want us to think about in the Bay Area is that in the 21st century, we do want to talk about technology, the advances of conveniences. We want to discuss the latest gossip about celebrities and athletes. Huh? 
We even want to complain about politics and politicians, but discussing things that have eternal benefits and consequences, we'd prefer to either worry about that when we believe we're closer to death or when something tragic happens to someone around us. But Paul, a messenger of God, a man who was in violent conflict with the gospel, who met Jesus after his resurrection, he knew that this message of grace, getting what you do not deserve in the person and work of Jesus, in this event of Jesus living, him dying, him rising again, was so important that even the most respected thinkers of the day ought to be thinking about eternity. Not because it's the place in which we go when we die, which it is, but like Paul, he understood that eternity meant giving you a life in this world that was so much more exciting and meaningful than just living, consuming, decaying, and dying. But instead, Paul was granted eternal life, like each of us who by faith receive God's grace in Jesus' finished work. And here is what we mean by eternal life. We talk about it a lot, and I love that Jesus defines this as he speaks to the Father, and it's written down in John 17. Here's what it says. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So for a moment, I know this isn't you, but just for a moment, I want you to imagine living a life and never actually knowing God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who placed the stars in the sky, the God who formed you in your mother's womb, the God who took on flesh and died in your place while you were at your worst. Imagine never knowing this God who is knowable who reveals himself through his very words documented for us so many years later, written by his very spirit who raised his very son from the dead. Imagine not knowing this God. But you do know God if you have by faith received his grace and you have eternal life, a life that exists. I want you to hear this. Eternal life is a life that exists to bring glory to God to bring meaning to pain, to bring joy in trials, to bring the gospel to light. Now, I love my life. I do, personally. I'm just going to confess this. I love my life, and not just because of my wife. She's awesome. Not just because of my kids. Awesome. Not because of my home, my friends, my resources, my health, my memories, my vacations, my intellect, or my comfort. Because the reality is, all of those things, they're going to decay. And there is no promise that any of those things will be here tomorrow. I love my life because Jesus is my life. And I know him. And I am with him. And I am superimposed by him in this life because he who knew no sin became sin for me in my place. And that is what you receive when you receive this eternal life. Luke goes on in Acts 17 verse 19. Then they took him, Paul, and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus. I'd like to say that word for some reason. Where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And then Luke writes this, all the Athenians and foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul was taken to somewhat kind of a city council meeting, but it was a little bit more like a think tank. 
And Paul was asked to share these ideas and then defend them. Luke also states that in Athens, they spent their time doing nothing but talking about the latest ideas, which for people who like to analyze stuff, anyone in here like to analyze stuff? Be honest, okay? That sounds great, but how does anything get done if all you do is analyze stuff? And Paul knew that presenting the message of the gospel and bringing good news to these people was something that he was appointed to do. What an amazing opportunity to be asked in front of a crowd to be given the floor and to have the attention of so many avid thinkers. Now, I'm, I'm just going to be real with you. I don't think that the goal of Christianity is simply to just get the message out, right? I don't think that is our main responsibility as Christian image bearers of Christ. It is something that we ought to be prepared for and even hoping takes place, but to just have it written on our car or our forehead or post all the time, I don't think that's our main responsibility. For the normal person, though, public speaking in and of itself is intimidating. Does anyone want to switch places with me right now? But to bring a message that will almost certainly find opposition not only doesn't sound too fun, it sounds awful for most people, but this is why, and, and I, I even kind of named the sermon after what I'm about to share with you, this is why we talk so much about heart and motivations as we teach the Bible. Because unless Jesus really did provide a way for every person by grace through faith to have their sins forgiven and be adopted into the kingdom of God, unless that's true, why else would we possibly share that message with people who might unfollow us or dislike us or even argue with us? For the religious, I'm going to talk a little bit about different uh, faiths, if you will, if you want to call them that, but religions. For the religious, say the Mormon or the Jehovah's Witness, it is part of their duty. Yes, I said duty. Because if they don't, they could lose what they have already been given. And if you read enough of how they interpret the Bible and how they interpret their own scriptures, there is a theme of this is what you do in order to earn God's love. Now for the Muslim, you are attempting to refrain from enough and be good enough so their God will then accept you and love you. Even for the legalist in the Christian church or a Catholic in some cases, there is an interpretive view that grace is a gift but you must earn God's favor in order for him to want to give you that gift in the first place. But as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, a person that exalts Jesus above any and everyone, we love, check it, because he first loved us. And we are not attempting to earn his favor by sharing his message with others. We share out of the overflow of grace we have received. Nothing more nothing less. And you might be like, well, that's not why I share. And so as your pastor, and in a lot of cases with people in this room, as your friend, I want to tell you that if your reaction to me telling you that you evangelize or share Christ with others is because of the overflow of grace that you've received, and you don't think that's why you do it, I'm going to encourage you to do something we talk about a lot, and it's not a threat, it's an invitation. Repent. Change direction. Get intimate with God by admitting your sin, admitting your false motives, 
and allow God to begin to change your heart, and through that, he will begin to change your actions. Paul, as he communicates often in his letters to churches and to Timothy, as he wrote two letters in Scripture to Timothy, he points out how off he once was doing stuff for God that he once did for all the wrong reasons. Here's what he says at the beginning of 1 Timothy. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me the strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He does this out of the overflow of grace. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst, Paul says. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul received grace, and it changed everything. And his supernatural reaction, which is natural when the Holy Spirit has shown you grace, was to look for opportunities to tell others the good news of the gospel of grace found in the work and person of Jesus. So what does he say? Well, he's brought to the city council meeting. He's speaking at Areopagus. Many of us, especially if you've been to Greece, you know it's called Mars Hill. Here's what he says, verse 22. Paul then stood up at the meeting of Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. When Bianca read it, it sounded so much nicer. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul begins with, here's the thing some of us might miss, he begins with a very respectful greeting. Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, if you were told this now, if I said, hey, you're hella religious, because Bay Area, it might sound a little bit patronizing, maybe even a little insulting. And I take what Paul is saying to these philosophers and Athenians as to mean, I see that you are thinking of things of God constantly, which is a compliment. For those who spend all their time thinking to be thinking about God, to be thoughtful about the things of God. And I kind of wish I had more of this, don't you? I wish I thought about more of him. I wish I was spending less time looking at Brock Purdy's stats yesterday, just being honest. But perhaps Paul, as he's speaking to these men in Athens, maybe he's buttering them up. But he also had their attention, and he was going to use something that they were already doing as the bridge for how to get to God through Jesus. Now, I personally tend to tease all the weird and oco taco ways that we attempt to share Christ with people, okay? Sometimes it can come off a little forced. Sometimes it can come off a little off-putting. I'll give you some examples. Maybe you wait till trash day. And when you see your neighbor taking out your trash, you run out, you grab your trash, you run up to them, and you point to the candy, and you say, you know, my life was trash before Jesus. That's awkward. <laughs> or when you go to order your drink from Starbucks or Pete's or wherever, and they say, what would you like? And you reply, I'd like a venti cup of grace and mercy and peace found in Jesus Christ in almond milk, please. Nope. Or if you're really committed, you get a tattoo. 
of a cross on the inside of your bicep. And every time someone asks where something is, you roll up your sleeve and you point to where the emphasis is, but you look at the cross. Where's the restroom? It's over there. Now, while some of you might be like, well, what's wrong with these examples? Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, saw his opportunity, motivated by the overflow of grace, received, and he took the chance of a lifetime. So this is an evangelism training, but let me give you some practical advice about talking about Jesus in a similar way based on what Paul's doing. Now, there are people around you all the time, have no relationship with God, don't attend church, don't care about Jesus, whatever, but they ask you about your weekends. So stop keeping to yourself what you do Sunday mornings while also not giving them more information than they ask for. You know what I'm saying? So, hey, what'd you do this weekend? Well, it was good. I watched the Niners play at home and I went to church Sunday morning. It was a good sermon. I met a few new people. Now, what's going to happen in this moment? The person that asks that question is then either going to engage in, oh, you watched the Niner game. Yeah, it was good. Blah, blah, blah. And you have that conversation. Or maybe they're going to ask you about what was taught. Or maybe they're going to ask you about what you learned at church on Sunday. But leave it at that. If they want to know more, they'll ask you what the sermon was about. When you're at work and someone tells you about something difficult going on in their life, ask questions because you care. And then offer to pray for that. And for some of us, that might just mean adding it to our prayer list. There's nothing wrong with that, but pray for it and then follow up to see how things are going with that person and that situation. But for some, if you notice that that person is shook and are physically dealing with grief or fear, Offer to pray for them right then and there. They can always say no, but, but there's something beautiful about praying for someone in front of them. It's, it's, in my opinion, one of the most evangelistic things we can do to be intimate with God in prayer in front of someone. Just don't force it. Keep it short. Keep it sincere. They'll generally be appreciative even if they don't believe in your God yet. Quote things you hear from the Bible. With the context in mind, don't, you know, quote it out of context, but leave the author out of it unless asked. I have had plenty of people go, man, what you just said, that was a good word. Where'd you get it? Jesus! And it has spurred on further conversations. Don't say Jesus like that, by the way. Now, all of these things require intentionality until they become a habit. But when they are a habit, I want you to be careful as well. Because if it's a habit, it could lose its spontaneity and become more white noise for a world who already thinks that Jesus is white noise because of too many cults treating him apart from what the scriptures actually say about him. So Paul, seeing the statues that represented the unknown God in, in the case that the Athenians actually forgot about one of the gods, they made a statue to the unknown god so they would not offend that unknown god. And Paul bridges this to Christ. Here's what it says, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Paul begins with who God is and how complete God is. 
Paul says that God was not invented or created out of human hands like these statues. And while God the Father does not need anything, God did take on flesh in his son, Jesus. And here's one of the craziest things. He became dependent upon his own creation as a baby, which is possibly one of the most mind-blowing things about the incarnation. Mankind, who is sinful and lacks the ability to do everything correctly, God entrusted himself to those very people. But God the Father, he's not in need. He does not need anything mankind can bring. He is so good that he loves us without having anything in our character that, or having anything in his character that is lacking that he would then require from us. And yet he still gives everyone breath and life. Paul goes on, verse 26, and he says, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands, and God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. It's almost like Paul is describing what he writes to the church in Colossae in Colossians chapter 1 when he says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Paul is making known that all things are by, for, and through Jesus. And that mankind's time and place in history is intentional. So that Paul says that those that they would seek him, perhaps reach out to him, perhaps find him. And Paul even adds that he's not far from any one of us. That's compelling, isn't it? There is a God who created you and chose intentionally to put you in your family. If you're ever like, why am I in this family? Because God wants it to give you the geography that you currently inhabit, all with the possibility that it would stir in you and those around you a want to reach out to him, to find him, to know and love him. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, it was general Greek philosophy to believe that we all came from God, and I did all this study on all these names that I can't pronounce, and it doesn't really matter that much, but generally, most of the Greeks believed that we all came from a God, and I had this whole rant that I ended up cutting. I'll give you the gist. Kirk Cameron is not my favorite Christian role model, okay? And if you don't know who that is, keep it that way. But here is what I'd say. We have opportunities galore in a celebrity and influencer-driven culture to point back to some of what is said or lyrics that are known. Here's one, Jesus take the wheel. Has anyone ever quoted this? Uh-huh. And while I like to tease this and you for this, there is no reason that using them for bridges for the gospel shouldn't be utilized. Verse 29. 
Therefore, Paul says, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Paul is still pointing to what the Greeks believe, and then he makes the connection that since we are not made by stone or gold or silver, that we should not assume that God is either. And then Paul moves on to application. What are we to do? Verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. There was a time, I don't know if a lot of us know this, there was a time when God did not judge people's idolatry as swiftly. Through his patience, he gave people more time to repent. But that was when the gospel message was only foreshadowed and yet to be revealed in Jesus' obedience, in his sacrifice, and through his resurrection. His patience then, and his patience now, with each one of us means the same thing as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And then you move on to verse 15, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. And what do Paul and Peter agree on in these two passages regarding mankind's responsibility? God is patient. What's mankind's responsibility? It's to repent. It's to change direction. It's to change one's mind towards sin. Please don't hear me say you need to repent and think of me as a dude on a street corner yelling at you for all the things you do wrong. I bet you I could compete with you when it comes to doing stuff wrong. But when we talk about repentance from the scriptures, it is an invitation it is this opportunity to receive the invitation of intimacy with God by being real with God about our failings. Do you have people in your life that you don't get to be your complete self with? You probably do. And in those cases, when you don't feel like you get to be that close to someone because you can't really be yourself, there is a disconnection in the relationship, and God doesn't want that disconnection with you. He wants us to be willing to say, hey, God, I've failed. I've done this wrong. I am real about this. We don't have a distant God, and that is what Paul is making known God's not just here when you come in this building. God, if you have trusted Jesus, resides in your heart through his Holy Spirit. We don't have a distant God. We also don't have a God that expects us to clean ourselves up. We have a patient God who sees us at our worst and superimposes by grace his son's action and sacrifice upon our lives. So Christians, we walk in freedom. We walk in forgiveness. We walk in love, and so we are safe to repent. Not because it saves us. Only Jesus can do that. But because repenting is what a person who understands God's grace will naturally do. Because they want nothing more than to be real and intimate with God, and that begins through repentance. Paul continues, verse 31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. God has set a day. This is the day when Jesus will come back. And guess what? 
We don't know when. But if you want to know my eschatology and what I think about Jesus' return, here's what I know. It's sooner today than ever before. We don't know when, but we ought to live expectantly. He will come back to judge the world. And what does Paul say? With justice. We all like justice, don't we? Let's be honest. We like justice. We like it when someone who is acting the jerk gets what's coming to them. Be honest. It's satisfying. Just me, you liars. When we were down in LA, we drove from San Bernardino area to Orange County like at 10 o'clock New Year's Eve. So we were like East Coast New Year's Eve time. And we're coming back from this party and we were driving in the worst rain I've ever experienced while driving ever. We were in a 9,000 pound SUV and only two vehicles on this drive from San Bernardino to Orange County attempted to pass us on the trek back. Guess what happened? Both of them spun out in front of us. They didn't hit anything from what we could tell, but I think that their rear wheel drive and the weather humbled them a bit. We like justice, church. But we like justice for others when they're wrong. But what about when we're wrong? And no matter how much any of us want to excuse our transgressions, you and I, we're wrong sometimes. Not only that, we're sinful. So Jesus coming to judge injustice might scare us. And it should if we're not with Jesus. Because his justice, the righteousness that is expected is not of one who is perfect and spotless. Jesus already accomplished that. He's perfect and spotless. He already did that. The justice that God comes with is simply this, to answer, what did you do with my son? Did Jesus live? Did he die? Did he rise from the dead? You heard about it and you cordially lived your life sympathetic to this message? Or did it change you? Did, it did you embrace this grace? Did you grasp how important God's sacrifice on your behalf actually is? And because of this, you are his and he is yours. So how or why do we believe any of this stuff that I'm saying? This will not be shocking to you if you attend here regularly because every Sunday is Easter. But God has given the world proof by raising Jesus from the dead. The more I read the book of Acts, the more I am shook by the fact that the resurrection is validation for everything we believe about Jesus. I have probably voted wrong in my past. I've rooted for the wrong teams. I have said things to people where I was incorrect, but I got one thing right in this life. Jesus rose from the dead and I put all my eggs in that basket, church. Amen? Okay. Barbara, thanks. Either he died and he stayed in the ground, and this book is worthless. Or he resurrected, and everything written in this book of letters is true. True about God, true about God's plan of salvation, true about our inability to earn, true about what is to come. Because of the resurrection, we can believe God when he speaks through Paul and says to the church in Ephesus that we are only saved by grace through faith in Christ. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. 
Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Now, I could walk through who both of those people are, and, and we might in the future, but I want you to see three responses to the resurrection that we see in this passage. You have three. There is one where people just disregard the resurrection as nonsense. They sneered, Luke writes. You have those who want to hear more about it, perhaps want more evidence, perhaps want more proof. They are not committed necessarily, but it has piqued their interest. And then there are those who believe. The resurrection becomes foundational. The resurrection validates what is believed by faith regarding Christ and his work. So I simply want to ask this. What is your takeaway from that? Even more than that, I wonder what you feel compelled to do differently after hearing this passage read and explained again. Does it motivate you to share your faith more with people? Does it motivate you to get a tattoo of a cross possibly? I don't know. To be more intentional. To pray for those around you that they would know God and be given eternal life. Does it remind you of how important grace is? Or that the resurrection validates what you believe? I'm going to invite the Neathlings up here, all three of them, to lead us in one more song of worship. I will happily take him if you'd like. And I'd love for you to take this time to process and perhaps share your takeaway with us. And the hope is that this will spur you on to do something different for the Lord. Because when we come here, we don't just read the Bible and put in our time. We don't just prepare a sermon because we feel like we have to. We do this because we believe God wants to change us every time we open this. And my hope is that all that we do would be out of the overflow of grace that we've received. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity, not only do, that I have to hold this beautiful little baby, but to worship you through the preaching of your word, through getting to see other people that know you and maybe are yet to know you. And we get to proclaim you through the singing of these lyrics that bring glory to your name. And so God, would you be glorified in this time and would you prepare us to do something different in our lives that brings glory to you? We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.